And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning welcome to the show. Of course, it's the second best day of the week as we get ready to wrap up the week, of course. And we're also getting ready to wrap up the month. Uh, of course, uh, Halloween just uh, right around the corner on Tuesday, so almost through the month of October. Thank goodness it's not been a good one for the markets. Uh, but November and December tend to prove to be a little bit better, so if you want some good news, there you go. Uh, today, of course, we're supposed to get the first estimate of the third quarter GDP report that's expected right now at 4.7%. Uh, that is according to analysts. Now, a couple of things about that note. Right, so when you hear the word 4.7, you didn't have 4.7% growth in the third quarter, right? That is annualized. So you take 4.7, let's just call it five for easy math. You divide that by four. That's your, your growth rate for the third quarter. And then what that assumes is, is you're now gonna get that same growth rate every quarter going forward. Of course, that's never the case. So again, you've got a lot of economists out this morning going, well, you know, with this type of growth in the third quarter, well, that just means the economy's on fire. Be a little cautious with that. First of all, that's nominal. That's not real. So you have to take the GDP uh, number and back out the near 4% inflation. So that's your real economic growth rate. Uh, second thing is, is that as you're looking forward, um, you know, it is not uncommon that you see an uptick in activity just prior to the onset of a recession. So again, you know, just because you have strong economic growth does not mean that you're going to avoid the recession, right? It's just, it's just the way, you know, we see these spurts of economic activity. We saw it in December of 2007 as an example. We had a fairly strong GDP report above 2%, but yet we were in a recession at that point. We just didn't know it for another year because we have to come back, get the negative revisions to the data. But again, there's always something that kind of causes the, the economy to shut down. So again, just, you know, the, the number is going to be good today. And that's certainly, you know, that's kind of weighing on the markets this morning because the assumption is, is that stronger economic growth means higher interest rates because of higher inflation. And there's there is a correlation to that, right? We've talked numerous times here on the show that interest rates, inflation, economic growth, those all tied, there's a high correlation between those, um, between those factors because that is what, you know, economic growth, activity, those things, that's what drives inflation and economic growth and activity, that's what drives interest rates. But you take a look at where interest rates are right now and of course where inflation is and we take a look at how that's impacting small businesses. As an example, small businesses make up 50% of the employment in the U.S. and they make up a very large chunk of most of the activity in the economy. I know we mostly talk about the General Mills, the Cokes, the Pepsis, the Apples, that's what we talk about every day, the, the, you know, the Metas yesterday uh, on earnings. Um, they do make up a lot of activity, but you have to also think about all the other businesses out there that are your mom and pop, you know, your hair salons, your nail salons, your gas stations, your food stores, corner stores, all those type of things. Those small to medium-sized businesses make up a lot of the economic activity. They're paying about 10% on interest right now for loans. We're seeing bankruptcies pick up. 
in that category because they can't refinance debt. They don't have access to the capital markets in a lot of cases to grab a hold of extra capital to work them through a bad time. They don't have the ability to buy back their shares um, to help boost bottom line earnings. So they don't have access to that liquidity, which makes them very subject to bankruptcy risk and those type of things. In fact, we're seeing a big surge in bankruptcies. Bankruptcies are up about 61% year over year right now, mostly in that smaller space. So again, that's also kind of that pre-recessionary sign. So while you're seeing this really strong economic data today, just keep in mind that that is just a function of how economies work and it's not uncommon when you're spending a trillion dollars on you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and all these type of things that you're gonna, that money is going to translate into a short-term boost in economic activity. The problem is, is sustainability, as is always the case. So just because you have a very good number now, and again, the, the, when you look at this number today, when you see 4.7 or 4.5 or whatever the number is, when it's actually reported by the Bureau of Economic Analysis this morning, divide that number by four, that's the actual number, and then you have to assume you're going to get that same growth rate for the next three quarters in the future, which just isn't going to happen. So, again, just you know, understand the numbers when they come out. Look at it. The market's going to be you know kind of maturating a lot over this today, but again, this is just kind of where we are. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Yesterday, not a pretty day for the markets uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we now have, you know, we talked earlier this week is that, you know, we had broken the 200-day moving average. We needed a, conf a confirmation of that break. We got that yesterday because, as we talked about, we broke the 200-day moving average. Then we rallied, got back above it. So, again, there was this moment here where it looked like we had negated that break at the 200-day. However, yesterday's sell-off was a confirmation of that break because basically we failed at the 200-day moving average, have now turned lower and broken well below that previous bottom as well as failed at that test of the 200-day moving average. So you now have a confirmed break of the 200-day. This is going to bring 4,100 in as the next target for support. So this 4,100 level, uh, we're about 4,170. So we've got about 70 points of downside uh, here in the markets here short term. That 4,100 level is the 50% retracement of the rally from March, uh, sorry, from October. So once we had that big rally, then we've now given up about 50% of that rally. That's normal within the context of a correction. So again, this isn't the beginning of a, a, a big bear market, those type of things. Uh, so kind of keep that in context as well. But a, a retracement nonetheless has been kind of, you know, kind of ongoing here for a while. Uh, we continue to work inside of this very defined kind of downtrend channel of the market as well. Uh, that's going to coincide also with that support at 4,100. So again, risk to the downside currently. Uh, one thing to note though is, is that the markets are oversold here short term and the MACD sell signal, which is back in place. And we talked about that earlier, and that's why we're getting these weaker prices. Um, those are also at fairly low levels. So most likely the downside here, at least near term, is fairly limited. So what we're looking for here is a potential rally that gets us back up to around 4220, um, somewhere in there, uh, some type of rally like that 
will give you an opportunity to reduce some risk and raise some cash until we kind of figure out what the next leg of the cycle is going to be. Uh, importantly, you know, as we start to move into the end of the year, November, December, again, continues to still be a stronger period of the year. Um, and in fact, if you look at kind of seasonality, we're kind of at the point, you remember last October, a uh, very tough couple of weeks in the last two weeks of October. Then you had that really strong rally in November, December. Uh, we're kind of back to that same level at this moment. So again, you know, kind of our range of targets run from about 40, uh, 43.60, which is the 50-day moving average right now, um, you know, at 42.80, somewhere in there. You've got some moving averages coming up. They're going to provide some resistance to a rally, but there's probably a fairly decent probability of a reflexive rally that we can use to sell into, rebalance portfolios, um, kind of you know reposition for what we think is going to happen as we get into next year. So again, be a little cautious about panic selling right here. Again, markets are oversold. You're going to be due for a bounce. Uh, use that bounce to rebalance uh, as, as needed. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Coming up, of course, we've got Michael Leibowitz today. Lots of stuff to get into about the markets, economy, interest rates, inflation. Where does economic growth come from? And why is debt important? All that coming up on today's edition of The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, of course. Uh, Michael Leibowitz joining me as well. Lots of stuff to get into. So, uh, Mike, just as I was talking about a moment ago, uh, expecting some uh, really kind of banner reporting today for uh, GDP. And, um, you know, this is, you know, coming at a time where, you know, there's already concerns about inflation and those type of things. And now you're getting this kind of this boomer GDP number. Just wanted to kind of grab your initial thoughts on it. Yeah, like like you said, this is probably going to be a big number. The Atlanta Fed, which uh, as as the quarter goes on, they take the data and they kind of create a rolling estimate of GDP. Currently, there last time I saw it was north of five percent. Wall Street is in the three and a half to four percent range. So you know, wherever it comes out, whether it's four or five above five percent, it's a big number. Uh, but you know, government spending was pretty large or has been pretty large. That's driving a lot of it. And, you know, another thing you pointed out, which is a big deal, is that oftentimes before a recession, there is a little spike in the economy before it kind of falters. So, you know, a quarter does not make a couple of years. So let's <laughs> just, you know, not get too excited about this. And look, the market, the market, knows what these expectations are just as much as us. And the stock market has been falling off pretty rapidly the last couple of weeks. So, um, you know, it, it's data and data from the government for many reasons gets revised, often revised lower when you go into a recession. We've talked about that with unemployment. We've talked about it with uh, retail sales. The same is true with GDP. So, 
you know, the Fed will probably get in a little bit of a tizzy because it's a high, high number. But but even the Fed is looking at many other factors that drive inflation. So we'll see what it is and we'll see what the market reaction is and take it from there. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and again, if you look at, uh, 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 you know, there's a lot of other data out there that, you know, people aren't looking at. Again, there's, you know, lots of articles floating around right now. Every, you know, everybody's got an opinion about you know, why this is a new regime for interest rates, why it's higher for longer. It's because of the war. It's because of economic growth. It's because of, you know, um, you know, the deficits. And, and, you know, these are all great in theory. And it certainly explains short term movements in, you know, kind of what's happening. Because, you know, as, as individuals, we were always trying to find a reason for why something is occurring. And and so it's, you know, this is the, the kind of the latest narrative Oh, it's the deficits. It's the war, you know, in Ukraine, and it's the war in Israel now, and um, it's the, you know, the demand for debt, um, you know, and the issuance of debt that's that's going on. Uh, and this is this. So we need to assign something to explain why interest rates are going up. But the reality is, is that this is simply a function of five trillion dollars worth of spending that we did back in 2022. This is still the effect of that, you know, that surge of inflation. Interest rates have been catching up with the inflation tick, as as it should, because there's a correlation between economic growth and inflation and interest rates. And so everything is about kind of normally where it should be given this environment. But there's going to be there are ramifications. I was as I was saying, if you take a look at small businesses, you know they're refinancing debt, you know at 10 percent now. That's not sustainable for them, and they're right. the backbone of the economy. So you're going to have a problem. Um, you know in the not too distant future, economically, that, you know, is going to reverse a, a lot of this activity. Well, Lance, we already, we had a problem in March, right? The regional banks and, and the regional bank problem was a problem for all banks. And what, what, so why banks matter versus any other industry is because we are a credit driven society or economy. Our economy economic growth is derived from credit growth. And over longer periods, you can't have one without the other the way our economy is structured. So who gives out credit? Who prints money? It's not the Federal Reserve. It's the banks. The, the Federal Reserve can make it easier or harder for banks to give out loans. But at the end of the day, it's the banks that give out loans. And right now, between the inverted yield curve and massive unrealized losses on their books, their incentive to lend money is pretty low right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the regional banking crisis was a real crisis that the Fed was able to suspend, hopefully get rid of, but at least suspend for the time being. But beneath it is a really big problem for banks. And what you're what you're seeing as a result is that they have to when they do lend money, it's going to be at higher rates than they probably normally would. And like you said, small businesses are borrowing uh, shorter term loans at 10 percent. There's also a huge amount of long term debt for for uh, kind of Russell 2000 companies coming up in the near future. They're going to have to refinance debt at, you know, four, five, six percent higher than it was prior, you know, prior to having to borrow the money. So, again, this is all symptomatic of the lag effect, the lag effect is anywhere from five quarters to nine quarters. We're not at even nine quarters yet. So we're still within the normal range of how long it takes for rates 
to affect the economy. And keep in mind, rates were so low for so long that so many people and companies were able to lock in low rates that this lag effect may take a little bit longer than prior lag effects. But at the end of the day, just remember that credit drives the economy. And right now, with interest rates where they are and banks in the status in their situations, credit is not going to be driving growth. What's driving growth is still that pig in the python that's trying to work its way through the the COVID relief and all the stimulus that came through and the delayed purchases from consumers and behavioral changes that's still working itself through the python. Uh, But credit and the money supply has shrunk. So, you know, there's a lot of factors pointing to deflation or disinflation. Uh, But as long as demand remains somewhat strong, the economy will be okay or good and inflation will probably be higher than normal. Yeah. And, you know, and this is an important point that, you know, uh, is, is missed by a lot of people when you're looking at this GDP growth as an example. Um, so you look at you know three four percent whatever the number comes out to be today we'll see, but if it hadn't been for the massive issuance of debt and if it wasn't because of the deficit you wouldn't have any economic growth. It is the debt and the deficit that's creating the economic growth in the economy. If you if you come in and you cut spending in order to reduce the deficit. You know, it's kind of this double-edged sword. It's like, oh, I hate deficits, but, well, you have economic growth because of the deficit. If you cut the deficit to zero, you have no economic growth. In fact, you would have a very negative economic growth, kind of bordering on financial crisis, probably recession, you know, depressionary-type situations in the economy. So, you know, this is the problem we've gotten ourselves into, is that we have to have the deficit spending in order to maintain the economic growth that we have, which is why we're always trying to struggle along to keep 2% growth. And yeah, we're going to have a 3% three or 4% growth rate today. Um, previous quarters were at 2 Very likely in the next few quarters, this anomaly of this quarter will pop back because of the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other spending. It'll move back towards 2% growth which is what we're just hoping to have. And and used to be, you know, in the 90s, 2% growth was considered pre-recessionary. It wasn't considered good. Now we're just hoping to have 2% growth <laughs> and 2% inflation. Um, but that's all got to be driven by debts and deficits. It can't be driven. You can't have that growth with no deficit. And, and here's a dirty little secret, Lance, is that Government debt, government deficits ultimately slow down the economy. They have a negative economic multiplier. So initially they help, but over time they hurt. So it's almost like a bad trap that we're in, that you want to boost the economy today, but you pay the price tomorrow. So if you want to avoid the price tomorrow, you got to issue even bigger deficits tomorrow and push it off for another day. So, you know, what we're seeing is in the longer run, bad for economic growth, it'll it'll reduce economic growth, and it's disinflationary or deflationary. But in the meantime, we're going to get these big numbers driven by, in, in part, by the deficit. And, you know, the market will react, but it, it seems to be losing track. You know, certainly the bond market is losing track of how deficits affect economic growth over the longer run. And, you know, for the bond market, if you're buying a 5, 10, 30 year bond, you care about the longer run. It's it's that period of time, that 5, 10 or 30 years that matters to you. It's equally important what happens in years four and five is what happens in years zero to one or one and two. 
So, you know, pay attention to these numbers. But again, the longer term ramifications of them are actually bad for the economy. Yeah. And, and again, you know, not just bad for the economy. It also is deflationary. It is also um, a function that at some point you begin to push towards things like Japan is doing, trying to do yield curve control, etc. And it's interesting, Japan's not trying to keep interest rates low. They're trying to keep interest rates from being negative. <laughs> so, right. you know, they're they're fighting that zero bound of interest rates because of the debts, the deficits, the government spending, the government, you know, these governmental attempts to control economic outcomes, you know, rather than letting the economy do what it needs to do. And this is the same trap we're getting ourselves into. And, and while there's a lot of, of thesis about why, you know, we're going to have a repeat of the 70s, you can't have that without sustain, sustainably strong economic growth over decades, which we had back in the 60s and the 70s, you're certainly not going to have that now because simply if, if, of nothing else because of the debts and the deficits. Right. And productivity growth, too, was much higher back yeah. then. And, that's a, and demographics were much better. So all the factors that drove inflation and drove higher growth are absent today. Yep. All right, quick break. We'll come back, uh, talk a little bit about the market. Been a, like I said, uh, you know, kind of in the opening segment, uh, been a tough uh, week for the markets, um, you know, but kind of what happens next and kind of what's the, the, the outlook um, as we get ready to go into 2024. We'll talk about that with Michael Leibowitz when we come back from the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so let's talk a little bit about the market um because obviously it's been a tough couple of months. Um, you know, back in June, July, we were warning that we'd get a you know anywhere from a three to a ten percent correction. We're there, um, and um, you know, yesterday we have now this confirmed break of the two hundred day moving average, which does suggest lower prices. We do have a sell signal in place, which suggests lower prices. And but you know, as I said, the the market is is decently oversold on multiple levels. So you're going to get a bounce here somewhere. So again, you know, it it you don't want to kind of panic sell here, wait for a bounce, and then, you know, sell what you want to sell to raise cash or rebalance your portfolio, reduce risk, whatever you want to do. Um, but you know, it's also important to remember we are moving into the last two months of the year. Um, typically tends to be stronger two months of the year. Um, you know, so there's a lot of reasons. Uh, and again, we've got a lot of data that's coming up that could be supportive for higher asset prices, at least in the very short term. But again, there's, there is risk. And particularly once we get into next year, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, you know, we still expect there to be the ramifications. This lag effect catches up with the economy. That's going to become problematic for earnings. You're going to slower earnings growth. That's going to weigh on valuations. 
you know, there's there's a lot of concern once we get into next year. Now, look, anything can happen from one year to the next, but there's certainly reasons to be concerned about the markets going next year. And more importantly, it's it's you know going to come down to the consumer ultimately because just as with this GDP report today, which is going to have a strong consumer spending component to it. The question is, is with higher interest rates and less less access to capital, can that spending continue into next year? And, you know, we're talking about, you know, mortgage rates and higher interest rates, borrowing costs, you know, all those the credit card rates, you know, uh, interest rates for cars, all that is weighing on the consumer. So at some point, there's a there's a logical thesis that the consumer is going to break at some point. The question is only when. And how long does it take? And I thought this would, let me just read to you from uh, an article. Um, we're going to get to the point in the next few months when I think the labor market starts to deteriorate more meaningfully, and that'll kickstart a recession when we get there. From our point of view, though, I can see a bounce for a month or two. It's been The market's been quite beaten up here. Markets have been coming down since July. But I think net-net, you want to be underweight equities if you're looking beyond the next few months. Because I think the U.S. economy is going to be in for a, a rougher, uh, a rougher road, and this is an article from Jeff Cox this morning on CNBC, and I think that's the right sentiment, which is you know markets just don't go straight down, they don't go straight up, they seem to do that from time to time. You know, remember in, in March, April, May, June, we could think you know the markets were screaming higher, it's like oh the markets are never going down again. And now everybody thinks the markets can't go up again. So this is what markets do. Markets tend to get you off sides by making you start to think that they're just never going to come down again or they're never going to go up again. And then you start making these emotionally based decisions. And, you know, something we've talked about here recently on the show, be careful of those emotions. You know, we went through that a lot yesterday. Um, kind of this bell curve of outcomes, you know, be careful, you know, sitting out there on the bell curves, you know, the end of those bell curves, those very small probability events that tend to occur, you know, focus most of your attention on that center of the bell curve where most of your probabilities happen. Um, so that's, but that's the challenge, right? That's the challenge for me. That's the challenge for Mike is, you know, how to navigate this over the next couple of months. Um, you know, Things that seemed to be bulletproof earlier this year, not so bulletproof now. Uh, so what's next, right? And and how do you position the portfolio? You know, on the so let's assume we're going to get a rally in the next month or two. So the question then becomes: so what are we thinking about in terms of repositioning portfolios in the next month or two for what we think may be coming next year? Mike, your thoughts? Yeah. So you know, when we reposition portfolios. Uh, it can be done a number of ways. You know, there's always the stock versus bond allocation. What do you expect from both of those? But within stocks, the way we think about it is both the allocation, how many stock or how much of stocks do we own and what type of stocks. So we spend a lot of time and we have quite a few tools on Simplevisor that help us show which sectors are doing better, which ones are doing worse and how they tend to rotate over time from outperform to underperform. So when you get to points like this where the market tone is changing, that's where paying close attention to some of the sector analysis and industry analysis starts being very helpful. Utilities, for instance, for instance, are outperforming the market. Staples are doing better. Those two sectors have been dogs for a long time. So what's the market trying to tell us? It's telling us that money is moving towards safer sectors. 
um, you know, earnings. What are earnings telling us? Well, we know that companies that have reported thus far, and it's probably only a quarter to maybe a third of companies, if not less, the general reaction has been poor despite what the earnings were. And typically, if a company has good, decent earnings, the stock will pop higher. We've seen the opposite. Google was down almost 10% yesterday on they beat earnings, they beat revenue, but they they had some problems with cloud server growth. Still growth, but just a little less than expected. Stock was down 10%. Meta had good earnings last night and the stock is trading lower today. So, you know, Microsoft had really good earnings and they were only up a couple percent yesterday. So the market tone has changed and we're paying attention to that closely and trying to figure out if this persists, if we make more technical damage, if it looks like there's a decent amount more downside, how do we shift our holdings? How do we reduce our holdings? And you know, where do we go? What do we do? Right. And and I guess this is one of the bigger challenges as we go into next year. You know, this year, you know, so let's go back, you know, last October, everybody hated the Fang stocks, right? So we wrote an article in, in late October. Uh, actually, November the 4th, to be exact, you know, asking the question, are Fang stocks dead? And we made the case why they weren't. And of course, you know, those have been the big winners this year. But now we're starting to talk about next year. Um, you know, is it value over growth next year? Is it, you know, bonds versus stocks next year? You know, these are the big these are the big questions. You've had three three negative years in a row for bonds, which is something that's never happened historically in bonds. Um you know, could there be a fourth? Sure, absolutely. We could have a fourth. But even in the 70s, you didn't have three years in a row of negative returns for bonds. So that's just kind of an interesting, you know, kind of note. Um, when you take a look at value versus growth, you know, it hasn't seemed like values mattered much in recent years because of the, in, you know, this kind of effect of passive indexing money flowing into the top 10 stocks of, you know, every ETF that's out there. Um, and this kind of this mindless robot of, of investing that we've moved into has distorted the fundamental valuation arguments in a lot of cases for buying stocks. Stocks that are fundamentally strong haven't performed well versus stocks that are expensive and grossly overvalued. So, you know, as we move into a potentially uh, a different environment next year economically, do we finally start to see value come value, you know, value stocks and fundamental, you know, kind of stock picking come back into vogue for a change? And and this is where our technicals are very helpful too, because it helps us understand if these little these changes that we see today are lasting and durable, or if they're just kind of the typical one, two week rotations that can happen before it goes kind of back to norm back to the quote unquote normal the way it was the way the trend has persisted and look we've been in an upward trend since october we've given up what about half of that yeah but technically that is still we're still in this bull market from october and you can argue we're in a much longer bull market nothing's been broken but now is the time where you want to think about what happens if it keeps breaking down? What happens if interest rates stay where they're at or go higher and the stock market just can't handle that? You know, so where do you put your money? Which sectors, which which companies and stocks and sectors and industries have been outperforming? Which ones have been underperforming and which ones are better in certain environments? Yeah. So now's the time to do that work 
not wait until, you know, till it's too late. Well, and, and again, this has just been a really challenging year in particular, though, um, you know, Mike, because, you know, nobody thought that, you know, FANG stocks and the top, you know, you know, kind of these top technology stocks, the Mega 7, as we talked about, nobody thought in October of last year that those were going to be the, the you know, the biggest, the, as big of a winners as they were this year. A lot of these stocks are up over 100 percent from their lows. Right. Um, you know, so, the, you know, this is this is the challenge. And, you know, trying to figure out where the market rotates to next. And, and I think you have to really start to make your case where and, and, and look, don't listen to, to Mike or I, you know, you have to make your own assessment of this. But you've got to make the case of whether or not you're going to have a soft landing. If you're going to have a soft landing, um, you are have disinflation, the soft landing in the economy, everything is OK then, you know, your your bet is going to be on growth oriented stocks because those stocks are going to do the best in that environment. If you're betting on a recessionary outcome, you know, you're probably going to want to focus on deep discounted valuation, you know, strong fundamental companies that pay a dividend because those will perform best from a, a defensive positioning in a recessionary environment. So, you know, you've really got to make that case. And you've got to, you know, build your thesis for your portfolio around whatever case you think is going to happen next year. But then, you know, as Mike said, you've got to pay attention to things because they may change. Your, your, you know, your outcome, no recession, soft landing, recession. If you bet on one side of it, you may get the other and you'll have to pivot at some point. So, you know, this, there's, there's no guarantees, unfortunately, when investing. But I think Mike's right is that you've got to look at you know, kind of what your opportunities are going to be as you head into next year. All right, quick break. We'll be back. Get ready to wrap up the show this morning. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show. I would be remiss, of course, to have Michael Lee Woods here, um, our resident bond expert, if I did not ask him at least a little bit about Jerome Powell, the Fed. Of course, their meeting is next week. Uh, the meeting, it's a two-day meeting, starts on Tuesday on Halloween. That should be scary enough. And <laughs> concludes on November the 1st on Wednesday of next week. And that's where we'll get their next policy announcement as to whether or not their outlook is for hiking interest rates, not doing something uh, kind of where they are mentally. Um, well, no, I don't want to steal the show from Mike. So, Mike, what do you think uh, the Fed does next week? Nothing. Um, <laughs> but but I think the Fed's not going to raise rates. The market's not expecting the Fed to raise rates. Um, and the Fed is certainly not indicating that they're in a position to raise rates. But I think what's very interesting is that over the last two weeks, Jerome Powell and seven or eight members of the Fed have come out and said that higher interest rates are doing the job for them. That they're it, basically without saying the word pause or stopping, they're saying we're done raising rates. Uh, doesn't mean they can't raise rates, but but they are alluding 
to something. Something has changed at the Fed over the last two weeks, and they are concerned about something. Uh, maybe their economic models are rolling over rather quickly. Uh, maybe their inflation, their expected inflation data is starting to come down much quicker. We don't know. Uh, but it's worth paying close attention to the way they word things in their statement. And then more importantly, if Powell gives us any clues to what has changed at the Fed to make them think that they're done raising rates and why this kind of recent jump in long-term yields will have such an immediate effect. Um, along those lines, I thought there were two comments, one from Bill Gross, the uh, quote unquote bond king who used to run PIMCO's bond funds, which were the largest bond fund manager, uh, at least in America, probably the world at one point. And Bill Ackman, a massive hedge fund private equity guy, both of them pretty much said the same thing. And it's that the market economists are are not that the, the economic deteriorate. There's economic deterioration that's worse than the market thinks that economists thinks. So they're both seeing something. Bill Ackman was uh, a few months ago uh, brought into the headlines because he said he was short bonds and he's going to short them to five and a half or six percent. The other, he came out, was it earlier this week? Yeah. He came out and said, I'm covering my shorts because, again, I think that he kind of repeated the Fed a little bit that that long rates are going to do that. They're going to hurt the economy more. But again, he said that the economy is weaker than everyone suspects it is. Mm. Uh, you know, my guess is that Bill Ackman not only covered his shorts, but he went long uh, mm. bonds during that period. He'll never let you know till afterwards. Um, so, you know, again, we look at a ton of data. There's nothing that we see that tells us that the economy is going to fall off a cliff in the next few couple months, few weeks, whatever it may be. But but clearly Bill Ackman, Bill Gross, and it appears the Fed see something that bothers them. So, you know, maybe we'll have to keep a closer eye on some of the economic data and GDP, you know, we started with GDP. Mm -hmm. GDP is is kind of a tough data point because it's lagging by definition. It's telling you what the what the growth rate was last quarter. But last quarter includes April and May. That was a long time ago. And even the data within their data set lags and is often revised. So, you know, what we're going to pay close attention to are, are more of the, the recent data. Uh, recent close to real time data, credit card spending, uh, you know, a lot of the banks and credit card companies will give you some data on that. We're going to look at jobless claims, continuing claims, continuing claims have been increasing while jobless claims remain very low. So, you know, a lot of people aren't getting laid off, but those that get, get laid off are having trouble finding a job. You know, again, the, the numbers aren't big, but they've been increasing slowly. Um, you know, we'll look at hours worked and wages for signs of you know, what's going on in the labor force. Um, you know, we'll look at the surveys, the manufacturing and service sector surveys. Those are pretty close to real time. Confidence surveys are pretty close to real time. What are they telling us? Is there a slippage in the economy that that's going to reveal itself like some of these people think over the next month or two? 
Well, you know, that's, that's we'll a, see, but yeah, that's a real interesting point, though, too, and it's something that uh, I discussed a little bit on uh, yesterday, talking about this kind of bell curve of outcomes. You know, it is interesting, uh, which is a good point, that you know we're about to see this rip roaring, you know, economic, you know, GDP report. But if you take a look at the Philly Fed index, the regional Fed index, um, you know, the right. the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, which is really, you know, people don't pay attention to the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. It comprises a hundred different data points on both hard and soft manufacturing and services businesses. Uh, that's been negative for months, right? I mean, it does not suggest right. the economy is just blowing and going right now. And a lot of these these you know economic, whether it's the National Federation of Independent Business, it's in recessionary territory. None of these suggest the economy is just going gangbusters, you know, like some of this data suggests, which really kind of brings you back to focusing on this whole impact of governmental spending. And I also think, Lance, that we have an inflation problem, not not in a, the way that we think, but in a way we measure it. Right. And, you know, I've said this before, you can't measure inflation. It's impossible to measure. Everyone buys different things from different stores at different times has different tastes and you know behaviors the whole nine yards you can't measure inflation so if you think inflation is higher real inflation is higher than than it's reported your economic data is going to look stronger retail sales aren't ad adjusted for inflation at all so if you have three percent inflation and three percent retail sales there's really no retail sales growth uh, gdp is is uh, deflated for inflation. So if you have 5% nominal GDP growth and 2% inflation, they report it as 3% real GDP. And that's the number everyone focuses on. But what if instead of 2% inflation, it's 4% inflation? Well, then your real GDP is 1%. And, and the point is not, not that, that we're any better at calculating inflation than the Fed or than the BLS or anyone else, but it's, you can't capture it. Right. And typically when inflation is steady around 2%, it doesn't matter. It, it's not really moving. It's not volatile. Well, it's very volatile today. And I think it's really hard to capture. And I think it can really screw with economic data and make it, you know, potentially stronger or weaker than it really is. So, you know, that's where some of these surveys and uh, some of the labor labor uh, type stuff that that aren't that don't have an inflation component can be very helpful. Yeah. You know, and one other thing, too, I just want to come back to the Fed real quick, is that the Fed and we've said this before, and I just want to reiterate this point because we're probably going to see some headlines on this is that the Fed is going to pretty much, you know, Jerome Powell is going to repeat what he said just last week. He's not going to change his speech in two weeks. Um, and he's right. going to say that, you know, you know, they're watching the data, you know, and they're leaving that one rate hike out there. They're never going to come out and say, we're done hiking rates. Because that takes that option, if they need to hike rates one more time, takes it off the table for them. So they're going to leave that hanging out there. And it also is kind of a break on the markets. You know, they don't really want the markets to go, you know, screaming higher and, and bond yields drop sharply because that puts the pressure back on inflation. If yields came down really sharply, very quickly, people are going to run out and start buying stuff, right? That's not what the Fed wants. So they're going to, you know, they're going to talk 
about, you know, they're letting yields do the work for them. But, you know, we're still concerned about the economic data. We're still, you know, that was a really strong economic report we just had come out on GDP. You know, if we need to hike rates, we can. They're going to leave that thing hanging out there, which is, is going to keep some pressure on the markets near term, I suspect. Um, it'll be it'll take a couple more meetings of the Fed not hiking rates. They haven't hiked rates since June. Um, but probably once we get into next year, the markets start sniffing out that the Fed's actually done. Right. And, and keep in mind, the Fed knows what this GDP number is. And they, they had a very good idea what it was two weeks ago when they kind of changed their tone. So this GDP number is highly unlikely affecting whatever mm. the Fed does next week. Right. They never would have made those comments over the last two weeks if they thought there was a lot of credence to whatever the GDP number is going to be uh, later this morning. Right. Absolutely. Um so again, you know, kind of the the you know the big concern, just real quick. And today we have you know we had a really terrible five year bond auction. We've only got about a minute, so you have to keep your answer short. We have a seven year bond auction today. A lot of focus on these you know terrible bond auctions. Do, do those mean anything? Yeah, in the short term, it means there just aren't as many buyers for the auctions. It it, it also means that Wall Street is probably gaming the process, knowing that sentiment is poor because they want to buy the bonds cheaper. So so they do what they can to kind of get the bonds to have poor auctions so they can buy bonds cheaper and then sell them at higher prices, uh, lower yields. So, you know, we should watch the auctions, but be careful reading too much into any one auction or or even auctions over a period of a few weeks. It's very short term oriented and very they're very gamed. Yep. All right, Mike, thanks so much. I uh, appreciate it. Um, Michael Lee Woods, yep. of course, his new article out on the website talking about real interest rates and, um, you know, prices, what, what you know, the, the correlation in those. Uh, make sure you buy the website. Check that out, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you have any questions or comments, send us those emails. Just simply ask a question right there on the front page of the website. Always happy to help you out. Have a great day. Uh, Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff here tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday talking about financially fit stuff there you go who who, who wants to miss that and, and i'm sure i am sure richard will give you a janet yellen impression if you really ask nice on the chat so anyway have a great day see you back here tomorrow see you then